Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 57. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by the timekeeper, Dr. Rob Carter. Hello, Rob. Hey, Joe. How you doing, sir? I'm doing good. Are we on time today? We were actually a little bit late. Great, Scott. You want to back up and try that again? Hopping into the time traveling machine? Yeah, I was, I was um, not sure what I was going to do. I was trying to think of some funny time pun. I, I couldn't actually do it when I was pressed to do it, so... Okay, <clears throat> back up. Go. This is heavy. I like Back to the Future references is all I can say. The clock tower in that film was just one of the best. It's a shame it's not real, although the Marietta Square has a very similar vibe to the square of that town, so I do enjoy seeing that town. Interesting. Do you know that they shot a bunch of that on different parts of California, but I think that... They must have been looking in, I don't know, other parts of America for the feel that they were trying to get, because it doesn't feel like California to me, most of the film. No, it feels like, you know, Route 66, sort of middle America stuff. Yeah. Indiana. Indiana is what I picture. When I, when I see that movie, I, I picture Indiana. Don't ask me why. Anyway. I had a, a, a great morning watching a video. It's an hour and 20 minute long, titled, Rob Carter's Wrong About Everything. Oh my word. <laughs> Is this the fan edit? <laughs> no, no, it's some some skeptics that we've tangled with before on creation.com. And um, yeah, well, they, they, they thought they knew what they're talking about, but I, I knew their method. And all I had to do was sit back and take a deep breath several times and just wait for the big reveal. And sure enough, they show their card several times and I have enough to say about it that I'm not worried about them showing that everything I say is wrong. Mm. But they did answer questions that I can't answer, which is fine. That's part of life. Oh, sure. I, mean, I might have an answer, but it's not like this is exact to, you know, down to multiple decimal points, a specific thing to do with that. It's just kind of like, yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe we can think along these lines and maybe one day we'll have a good answer for that. <laughs> but that was in the minority. Usually they're just not being truthful about background information. And that's the key. You gotta, what are they saying? They just said that. Wait a second. Go look at that paper. That's not what the paper's saying. Right. Well, it is interesting that you have a fan club and you have a rival rousing enemy group. <laughs> Anti-fan club. <laughs> yeah. They say that anything worth making and anything worth doing is going to have fans and, and enemies. I can handle it. We had a wonderful time in Florida. Oh, yeah. I don't know about uh, your upcoming trips to Florida, but ours were wonderful. We went to St. Augustine and had a good time. I haven't had a vacation with all the Darnell family tree in a while. My dad couldn't make it. He had work to do. But other than that, it was uh, all of us, and we had a blast. St. Augustine is really good. We wanted to go to the fort. Yes. Be, but this was Memorial Weekend, Memorial Day weekend. And it oh, was, yeah. It yeah, was insanely yeah, no. busy. Yeah, all over town, and we went to a restaurant, and we had a reservation, so it wasn't terribly difficult to get in. But it was so loud and so busy. The city itself was wearing us out, so we enjoyed the beaches, though. Yeah, nice Going to do there. it again. We had some follow-up, Rob. I wanted to talk about the acid rain and killer bees a little bit because we had questions unanswered last time. Yes, we did. Because you stumped me. Now, in particular, the question was, when did the news or the threat of acid rain fade away into oblivion? And was it ever really real? And then the issue with the killer bees was that that happened soon after the acid rain, right? And we were wondering if killer bees and African bees actually make anything in the way of good honey or not. Because I'd heard that from a source that I think it was the African bees make really incredible honey, but that 
they're just so hostile that it's not worth to fight them to get to the honey. Yeah, let's start with the acid rain. (laughs) Well, after doing some internet sleuthing, Wikipedia came to the rescue once again, just for the summary information. Apparently, acid rain, according to the word on the street, was real and has never actually gone away. Really? In other words, it really was no big deal from the beginning. (laughs) Oh, okay. Something, I don't remember what the number was, something like 4 to 6% of lakes in New Hampshire were acidified. But again, it depended upon the rocks that were sitting, that the lakes are sitting upon, whether or not they asked the, the water would acidify or not. And yet, we did a lot of environmental cleanup from, you know, the Clean Air Act back in the 70s and a lot of uh, modifications and things up through the 80s and 90s. Even to the 2000s, we've been removing sulfur dioxide from emissions um, and all sorts of other basically industrial things that used to go up into smokestacks and come down in your neighbor's yard. Well, the neighbors don't like that, like you know Canada. So international agreements and um, scrubbers on smokestacks. And uh, of course, it helped a lot to export most of our industry to China. Oh, huh. does that mean that they would have more of an acid rain problem today? Oh, there, there, are, there are fogs in China that have a pH of like three. Wow. So it will eat away any kind of a marble sculpture or, you know, fade away paints and things. Just, yeah, they, they, their smog levels there are horrendous. And that, of course, is mixed in, especially in northern China, with Gobi Desert dust. So that doesn't help. Mm. But the amount of coal that they burn and, yeah, they kind of have pseudo-environmental laws that you just got to pay somebody and get around them. So it's hard to breathe sometimes in, in certain places in China mm. because of the industry. I came across a interesting video on YouTube last night, just as we were turning the TV off and getting ready to go to bed, where it was saying 15 incredible places in the world that you would think were not real. Yes. The top thumbnail was an example of what looked like a underwater waterfall. And then uh, that sucked me in. So I clicked on the bait. But there was several <laughs> interesting places in China. I, I was Okay, but super wait, impressed. is there an underwater waterfall? Yeah, I'll put the video in the show notes if you are curious. This is the weekend okay. after all that we are recording. Yeah. But you'll hear this later next week when it's not the weekend anymore. But the, it's, it'll be the weekend again someday when you're listening to this. And the YouTube video demonstrated that there is this uh, two, almost like a, I don't want to say it's actually two mile drop, but a tremendous drop, over a thousand foot drop underwater near the beach. And what you see in the clear water, the blue waters, is the sand residually tumbling ah. down this cliff underwater into the abyss. Cool. Okay, now I'm, now I'm intrigued. I want to know where this it's, is. It's gorgeous. It's, it, it looks unreal. It looks like something that you would see from that planet in Avatar. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Cool. Well, we solved acid rain. Watch that video if you want to hear the good news about the fascinating places in China, because there are some gorgeous locales in that video. Now, I want to hear about killer bees. Yeah, well, killer bees are a real thing. And again, this is back in the 70s when the big scare, acid rain, killer bees, and all sorts of other things we were scared about in the 70s. Um, they're real. They're called Africanized honeybees. They're smaller than the standard you know, honeybee that we use in our apiaries, which are usually Italian. Uh, but the Africanized ones are very aggressive. And when you go bonking on a, a beehive in a bee yard, you'll get you know, a few dozen. If you do really aggressive, maybe 100 bees will come swarming out and you know, trying looking around for what the threat is, and they might sting you. But I heard that basically the whole African hive empties out and swarms when you disturb it. Wow. That might be a little, you know, overemphasized. 
but they are a lot more aggressive and they don't necessarily have a more powerful sting. I mean, they're smaller bees, but they do produce a lot of honey oh. and they do fertilize a lot of plants. They're just very protective of what they make. And that's the difference. That's not all bad. Well, no. And, and so some people do work with them. And I've seen videos over the years of, yeah, I've got this wild hive and they look like they've been Africanized. And they said, it's really not that bad. And other people are like, this is terrible. I got stung 20 times today. I hate these bees. So it all depends on what you have. Yeah. (laughs) I think there might even be degrees of Africanization also. Oh, okay. And they're pretty much in the States. They're really, the further south and west you go, the threat goes up. So if you're a honeykeeper in Arizona, you're not collecting wild swarms. Oh, that makes sense. Because they'd they'd be Africanized. Now this makes me wonder, Rob, I'm curious if there is a business for honeys from around the world. I'd like to know what the different uh, flavors might be and seasonal results might be uniquely different. I'm, I'm absolutely certain that that exists and you could get a selection. Because I do enjoy my fancy coffee beverages from, you know, different coffee sources from around the world and it makes a huge difference. You just try regular Ethiopian bees versus Yergeshef bees. Uh, Sorry, did I say bees? Ethiopian beans versus Yergeshef beans and you'll taste the difference. I have to imagine that there are some interesting honeys from around the world different from what we're used to and I'd love to try that. Well, I just got on Amazon. I'm clicking around. I said, world's honey, but I don't see a selection. I see single ones. There's someone's going to have a, a wooden board with five different little jars. Exactly. With honeys from around the world. Yeah, yeah. That, that exists, I'm sure, somewhere. And there's some really weird and exotic honeys, but they're, they're expensive. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't try them every day, but it would be nice to have them on a piece of buttered toast just once. So another thing we wanted to mention before we dive into the main topic is that this is the day that we've all been waiting for, for the drop of the first bonus episode of Equinox. Woohoo! If you wanted to check that out, we'll have a link in the show notes right beneath this podcast. It's available on the website. You can join, you can become a member of Equinox Plus, where you'll get the exclusive bonus episodes, and we'll drop a new bonus episode once or twice a month other topics that we don't get around to in the regular discussions. So anything special like that, maybe even take on some topics from the listeners and the members themselves that they pass along. So if you are becoming a member and you have questions for us, topics that you would like Dr. Robert Carter to talk about, then expect some of those to appear in bonus episodes as well. Perfect. Well, then moving on to the main topic, do we still have time to get to this one? Uh, I don't know, man. I I think we're a little short on that. Oh, snap. Well, there's always the bonus content on the members feed. So (laughs) catch you next time, guys. (laughs) No, actually, this is a funny thing. We've bounced around this topic a lot, talking about calendaring and keeping track of time in the year. We've talked about seasonal changes and gravitational forces influencing time. Yes. Astronomy, yeah, all sorts of things dealing with time. I, I want to understand or understand how to tell somebody how time works in the movie Interstellar, which we reviewed. I'm not sure if I can explain it to my wife. Maybe you could help. I don't think it's explainable because I don't think it made actually physical sense, but okay, whatever. Oh, uh, that's good to know. Well, I want to begin with an odd idea. Something that you're not expecting, I hope, and something I'm going to try to surprise the audience with. And that is, I wanted to try to describe God's perception of time. And then we'll talk about man's perception of time and how how we see things happening. So the Bible says that God knows the end from the beginning, right? He's the Alpha, the Omega. He, He knows all things. 
How is that possible when time is like an arrow? Time's like an arrow. It goes in a straight line and it only goes in one direction. Well, is that actually like a something we can scientifically verify or is it more like that is the only way that we can perceive the flow of time that is that we only perceive it that way uh it that might be true i mean i guess you know god could wind rewind the clock and everything go backwards and our memories would erase yeah but that's irrelevant because it's still only going in one direction once he starts the clock again right so we can only see the universe ticking 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 and it never stops right there is no pause button and it only goes in one direction and it and it never goes backwards it doesn't now we can slow it down we can speed it up using einsteinian relativity ideas but it only goes in one direction so half of sci-fi is trying to get time to go in the other direction right all right so imagine an arrow do you have a pencil or pen nearby i don't i'm at the computer oh you don't i have a cursor do you have anything like a stick Okay, you can use your finger. We'll use oh, your wait, finger. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Okay, I found some pens right here. Excellent, excellent. Hold, hold the pen up with a point pointing to the right. Okay, pointing to the right. Now, you, you're, this is the arrow of time. Okay. We are on that arrow. Right, traveling. It's already launched. We can see behind us. We can't see in front of us. But we know every time we take a step that that's the direction that we're going. Flying through the present. Now imagine you're God and you're looking at the arrow. You can see the whole thing. Yeah, you can see where the arrow, he can see where the arrow goes. Okay. But what if the arrow is infinite? Oh, right. You just have to, you know, back up, back up, back up, back up, back up, back up, back up. So you can see more and more of the arrow. Okay. How about this? We perceive time in one dimension. Forward. I don't follow you. Uh, A non-dimensional object is a point. A one-dimensional object is a line. Oh, okay. A two-dimensional object is a sheet. A three-dimensional object is a block. Yeah, okay. Now I get you. Okay, so, so we have time in only one dimension. It's a line. Take your pencil now that you're holding and turn it so the point is pointing toward you. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little worried that time is aiming at me right now, but yeah. It, well, what happened to the arrow? It, well, if it were in motion, it would be traveling behind me. It would be moving behind me. Yes, but what do you see? The tip of the arrow. And I see the past. You collapsed all of time into another dimension. Oh, okay. You took a one-dimensional object and rotated it in an extra dimension, and all of time collapsed to a point. Gotcha. So at this point, you don't, like, if God's looking at the line, he can look left to the past and look right to the future. But if he rotates that, he sees the beginning and the end simultaneously. That's cool. So God, as a higher dimensional being, is not limited like we are. We are stuck in a one directional system and there's nothing we can do about it. He's not. Fascinating. I love, I love that thought. Yeah. Okay, so we got time, uh, God rotating the giant universal pencil. And now let's talk about man being stuck and why keeping time is so important. Now, that whole uh, podcast we did on calendars was amazing and fun. We have never talked about atomic clocks, which hopefully we'll get to by the end of this episode. Cool. But keeping time is really important. We need to know what time it is. If you say, you know, if you're in the Middle Ages and you say, okay, um, uh, show up at the market at 10 p.m. and I'm going to send you, or 10 a.m. and I'm going to sell you a cow. 
it sure would be nice to know when 10 a.m. was. If you just say, show up in the morning, I'll be there in the morning, you might be waiting a couple hours for that guy to show up. But if you're just going to sell a cow, it doesn't matter if it's 9.55 or 10.05 or even 10.15. It's still 10 o'clock. It's whatever. You're just sitting around waiting for the guy to show up and you might waste 20 minutes waiting. But if you start getting into more and more financial transactions and you say, okay, this guy's going to sell me that and I'm going to take that and sell it to another guy. The more financial transactions that you can do, transactions you can do in a day, the more money you make. So you got to start taking really good time records here. And if you get two different orders coming in and they're ordering the same thing, but you only have one of them, who do you give it to? Are you going to give it to the first person who made the order? Well, then you better have an accurate time on those, those sales receipts to know who to sell it to. Or if you're a factory and you need to send you know, automobile parts to Detroit and you're in Atlanta and you're using the rail system, well, that rail system had better have very accurate timekeeping because they need to go multiple tracks, multiple junctions, put cars together, break cars apart, not crash into the other train, um, wait for rush hour and then go through a city. I mean, there's all these things that that train system needs to know. And one of the things that drove modern timekeeping was railroads. That makes a lot of sense. Episodes ago, we talked about how time zones were driven by the railroad industry. For the first time ever, we needed time zones. Yeah, that is interesting. But we also needed down to the minute. I, I, I just ran into a... Um, an editorial or a letter to the newspaper that my great-grandfather wrote a long time ago. And he was complaining about the Long Island Railroad schedule. And he said, just because one of your trains gets hung up somewhere else, that doesn't mean you have to delay the next train. I missed a day of work because of you. (laughs) He wrote that in the newspaper. Now, he probably got to work an hour too late and they docked him an entire day's pay. Oh, man. Because back in the day, that's how things worked. And he was living out on Long Island. He depended upon that railroad to get to work. And so timekeeping is so incredibly critical in the modern banking, absolutely critical. Stock markets, I mean, if you can t- shave off a millisecond from a transaction, you can become a multimillionaire because you can beat the other guy selling and buying all the time and you're just faster than everybody else. Yeah. At science, we need to know how, you know, how fast things happen. We need clocks that are so accurate and we need more and more and more accurate clocks. If we didn't have accurate clocks, we would have no computers. We would have no internet. We would have no GPS. That's insane how much depends on good timekeeping. Yeah, and we want faster and more accurate clocks because the more accurate our clocks get and the faster they get, the faster we can do things and the more accurately we can catalog and measure and schedule and it's happening and happening at such a rapid pace. I mean, the, the, the idea of timekeeping is ruling our lives right now. And we don't even realize it. That's incredible. I mean, when's the last time you actually had to set a clock? Oh, not, not lately, except in the car. Okay, okay, in the car. But, you know, your cell phone, it's, it's pulling an atomic clock signal that's coming from a cell phone tower that's being regulated by somewhere else and somehow they're tied into the National Bureau of Standards. Right. So the entire cell phone grid has exactly the same time. That that is very complicated and very amazing. It is. And if it wasn't like that, we would not be able to use cell phones. The last I remember, um, we had a professor that was chronically late at Georgia Tech and it was like a rule. I don't know if it was a real rule, but everyone knew the rule that if a professor was more than 15 minutes late, then class is canceled. 
no one ever actually tried that because this guy would be more than 15 minutes late often. But the clock in that room was eight minutes slow <laughs> and everybody knew it. And so he, and he'd walk in, he'd look at the clock and, uh, and then he'd start, but so he was, or, you know, pushing it and he just got later and later and later. Now, so he's, you know, 15 minutes past, eight minutes past. <laughs> and so I had a watch, a mechanical wind-up watch that I had set to something and I knew it was within 30 seconds. I probably, you know, the beep on the, on the radio or something like that. I don't remember what I had said it to. This is in the, in the late 80s. And I went up to the front of the class and I reached up and I turned a little thingy and I set the clock correctly. He comes in, he looks at the clock and he looks at it, he looks at the clock again. He goes, what happened to the clock? And I said, I set it properly. Oh, well, uh, uh, I, I think it's a little fast. <laughs> I was like, no, no, sir, that, that's pretty close. And he didn't get mad at me, but that was really brave to... to <laughs> Do, but this is, you know, one of the main classrooms for, the, for our school of biology. I had multiple classes in there. That clock had to be accurate or the, the world just collapsed. So I fixed that problem. You, you know, when you frame it like this, it's interesting to ponder that we do have like a right to a thing or we have a, a right to a place during a period of time. We are safe in a particular place. We, we should be there. And we belong there during a period of time. But then outside of that time, we don't belong there or it belongs to someone else. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, it's like reservations at a restaurant. Right. A park or, huh, cool. So you asked me a bunch of questions when, actually, this is your suggestion. You wanted to do this topic. And I said, oh, okay, this will be fun. And I said, what do you want to talk about? And you fired off a whole list of questions. And one of the things you asked was, what are the most interesting clocks in the world? Oh, yeah. There's only one in my mind. Really? Everything else is second. Hmm. It's the Prague Astronomical Clock in the Czech Republic in Prague. Interesting. It's in some sort of a town square thing. I, I, I don't know. I've never been there. But one of my, on my bucket list, I want to go and watch this thing. Not just look at it, glance at it, but stare at it. Dude, I'm looking at a picture of this. It reminds me of the clock tower at, the, at Hogwarts in Harry Potter. But they must have based it off of this. This is incredible. Wouldn't be surprised. But it's also the oldest still functioning clock in the world. Not necessarily the oldest working clock in the world, but the oldest one that has never been turned off or broken or you know had to be fixed over decades. They have taken it down a couple of times and replaced parts and repainted it. And they refurbished it just a couple of years ago because they wanted it up for the, the 600th anniversary. Wow. <laughs> If you scroll down in the notes, all the different features that this thing does. Okay, so we've got star time sidereal. 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 Tropic of Capricorn, uh, astronomical night, daybreak sunrise, planetary hours border, planetary time, equator, tropic of cancer, daytime zodiac, 24-hour clock, 12 plus 12, mean solar ecliptic, present daytime, ancient check time place of observer <laughs> eclipse th this is incredible that all this is told on these fa this face yeah and, and more wow there are other clocks in the world that are similarly amazing but some of them honestly i find them so abstract as to be not boring but too artsy for me mm. there's one particular one in, in japan where it's a it's like a sundial but it's got so many, you know, it's got staircases and gnomons and pillars and, and you, you can tell all the stuff and it's really cool, but it's not mechanical. And what gets me is the mechanical part. So as you know, 
just this last week, I was filming a uh, biblical genetics episode, and I'm doing it on the waiting time problem in evolution. And so I started Googling cool clocks around here, and I found the world's largest clock shop 30 minutes from my house. But it's not a clock factory. It's a basically antiques. They sell some new clocks. They fix clocks. They work on clocks. In fact, when I went there to do the filming, the owners were in New York City, probably because they had some big clock refurbishment to do. I'm not sure. But they had a room full of grandfather clocks, a wall of cuckoo clocks, antique clocks. They had this gigantic clock. They had another gigantic clock. They had a clock that was made in 1865 in England and was in Connecticut for a long time. And it's the face of the building is a, is a probably four foot or more, maybe six foot diameter clock. And behind that is a whole bunch of pulleys and a big metal uh, iron, wrought iron cage with wheels and gears and things that go click. And these gigantic weights that are on these pulleys that actually they had holes cut in the floor so that the weights, when they fell slowly over the course of the day, would go through the floor and keep on falling. <laughs> <laughs> and this cage was probably three foot by three foot or four foot by four foot by four foot. And that, I mean, I, I asked the guy that was there, I said, hey, um, can I go up the stairs there and look at this? Like, yeah, sure. So I went up there and I took a little video and took a picture of it. But it was really hard to capture all the little things that were happening and moving. Some of the things you could see move and other things, of course, are moving once every 12 hours, it would turn in a circle and you, you would not be able to notice it by staring at it. Just amazing. And so you're also asking questions about um, how wind-up clocks work. Well, it, it, well, telling analog time and being so accurate down to the minutest second and having something that you could rewind or you could not charge, I guess everything would depend upon being rewound. Weren't there grandfather clocks where essentially the pendulums were things that you had to just give a flick so that they would continue until they kind of wound down after many hours? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm one of my friends. In fact, I'm going to my friend's house tomorrow who has one. Nice. But they see those work on gravity. And you're, you also ask, why can't you synchronize mechanical clocks? We will get to all those questions because it's really fun stuff. Yeah, let's do it. There are all sorts of different weird ways to tell time. And one of the coolest ones I saw as I'm looking around for the most interesting clocks was a clock where the second hand was at the tip of the hour hand. So how does that work? <laughs> so it's spinning as the, it's like a, a pinwheel on a, on a stick. So it would uh, uh, spin one complete revolution per second. Oh, maybe. Okay. No, there was three arms. Mm. All right. I'm going to click on his board Panda. I'm going to click on that link there. 25 cool and unusual clocks. I'm going to scroll down to number... Da, 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 where is it? Oh, don't tell me. Okay, there it is. Number 12. Okay, no, I doubt very much that that's a... Well, second minute hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hours, minutes, and seconds. So you have the hour hands going around once every 12 hours. The second hand turns around once a minute. The minute hand turns around once an hour. The hour hand turns around once every 12 hours. And they're connected to the end of each other. Oh. So it's constantly changing shape as it spins. It's like a, like, you know, when you get your, um, when you're setting up a tent and you have the shock cord in the middle of the poles. Mm -hmm. And then you have to get it lined up so the poles go together. What is that stuff called? The elastic holds it together so it doesn't fall apart. Right. It's sort of like that. Take, take one of those and spin it around. It would change all funky shapes as you spin it. I thought that was just a really cool concept. Sorry, it took me a while to explain it because <laughs> I, I couldn't go from hour hand to second hand. I had to go from second hand to hour hand, but I, I, I did it. Anyway, 
So all sorts of really weird ways to do things as far as keeping time goes, but some of them just aren't very intuitive. Uh, the highest point in Florida has a, a tower on it, and it has a very strange clock. And I remember going there and I took pictures, but I never followed up on it. And I wanted to know what was going on because it was sundial-like and clock-like, a lot of weird things. And I knew that whoever designed this was some uber-brainiac nerdy person, but I never followed up on it. So maybe I, can, I should do that for homework for next week because that was cool. And then there are lists of like the largest clock faces in the world. But honestly, those are kind of boring because it's just a clock face. Oh, yeah. Okay, you built, you built a big one. Ooh. Have you ever seen the movie Hugo? Yes. And I'd never heard about it before I clicked on it. Probably Amazon. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Just a kid working inside the clocks. <laughs> it's right. Really cool. Brilliant. It was. Clock mechanisms are fun and amazing. The oldest clock in the world. It was broken for a while and they have had to fix it. But it's at Salisbury Cathedral in England. Not too far from Stonehenge. It was made in the 1300s. Wow. That's the oldest clock in the world. And it's the tower it was in fell apart in the 1700s and they fixed it up again. And then they did something and it was sitting in the corner. And then they said, hey, this thing's still here. So it's still working. It's just unlike the, the clock in Prague, it hasn't been working all the time since the 1300s. Hmm. But just thinking that some medieval person put together something made of iron. Yeah. And it still works. What on earth? If you want to keep time, you have to make a click. Mechanical clocks, they click for a reason. Reason go tick, 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 tick. It's because there's something stopping and starting. Like if you had a grandfather clock and you, 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 you have that heavy weight and it's on a chain and you just let go of the weight, it's going to pull, 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 pull till it's the bottom. But it's going to speed up as it goes. It's going to accelerate. So you have to stop it and then let it go again. Stop it. Let it go again. Stop it. Let it go again. So it doesn't get faster. It falls a little bit and stops and then has to start again. You need what's called an escapement. It's just something that pauses and then lets it go again and pauses it and lets it go again. Yeah. And that was uh, one of the greatest inventions of the Middle Ages as far as clocks are concerned. And in this case, it looks like a, um, uh, a bandsaw blade or this, the blade I used to use on my sawmill when I had a sawmill. Oh, yeah. It's just a, a circle of metal with a bunch of teeth and the teeth are straight up and down and then the backside of it's at an angle. And there's a, a rod with these flappy things that'll hit the flat side of the teeth and stop it. And then that pushes something else. And on the other side, there's another flappy thing that catches it again. Right. And it goes, it alternates back and forth. It goes click, 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 stop, 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 stop. And all of a sudden, you have something that keeps time. It was impossible to do before they had something like that. So that's how you can take gravitational potential energy and use it to measure time. Now, theoretically, that weight is getting heavier the closer it gets to Earth. How do you fit? What do you mean? <laughs> because GMM over R squared. R squared right. to the center of the Earth is going down. Therefore, it's getting more, it's getting heavier. <laughs> so that means that the motion or the passage of the time read on the clock accelerates, correct? Uh, yeah, but we can't measure the difference. Right. But if you got, okay, so let's say, okay, we could tell a difference though. If we had a clock, one of these clocks far above, like, you know, up in a satellite yeah. versus the exact same kind of clock down right by the ground in a cave, you know, like really low. Or if you had a clock that had a, a three mile chain and a weight, there would be a difference in the mass of that 
plumb bob from the, when you wound it all the way up to when it ran all the way out to the bottom. And that would affect your, your escapement. That would affect the passage of time. But we don't. You know, the, the difference between a couple of feet in the gravitational well of the Earth is not measurable, especially when you're talking about something as inaccurate as a mechanical clock. The error is so much greater than the gravitational potential difference, it, it's completely irrelevant. But it's kind of fun to think theoretically the clock is actually tacking, ticking a little faster. But actually, it is ticking a little faster. Yeah. Because as the weight goes down and the chain unwinds, you're adding chain to the mass of the falling thing. So it's getting heavier. <laughs> and well, so. We don't want that to happen, really. <laughs> well, I, I am pretty certain that there are clocks that compensate for that somehow hmm. and well, so there's got to be a way yeah. well and, and so one of your one of your questions was you know how come these things aren't very accurate or how do you make them more accurate well you make them more accurate by compensating for every possible thing you can think of and therefore they get more and more complicated the escapement was critical accounting for the mass of your thing as it increases because it's going down as a, as a chain is unwinding from the the thing it's wound around the chain, there's more chain hanging down. You got to be really careful with when you're winding, you can only have one layer of chain around the thing that you're winding it up around. If you have two layers, you just increase the diameter. You know, all those little things. And it, it was driving people insane, trying to get clocks to be accurate. Yeah, I mean, literally, not, not literally insane, but it was maddeningly frustrating. <laughs> and different clocks, you've put them in a different place, they behave differently. And clocks, of course, especially the larger ones, you have a lot of wood components and wood swells and shrinks depending upon temperature and humidity. Well, even metals, they swell and shrink depending upon temperature. And temperature varies throughout the day and throughout the seasons. And so clocks would tick faster in the morning or slower in the winter or whatever it was. They weren't consistent. And it drove people bonkers. Okay, enter Harrison. Harrison. We've talked about him before when we talked about lat the longitude problem and Harrison's clocks. Harrison was a self-taught brainiac. The guy was genius. And there was a prize in England for the first person who could build a clock that could go on board a ship and keep accurate time. And he worked and 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 finally built this giant box that was hanging from some ropes and he got it on a ship. And I think they went to Lisbon and back to London, and it didn't keep accurate time. What he figured was every time the ship turned, the torque would mess up the time. Arg! And so, back to the drawing board. And he basically kept on working and working and working. Every time he needed to adjust something, he would, he would I don't want to use a, I'm trying to use a non-racist and non-slanderous term for, I almost said jury-rigged. I think that's okay. I don't think that's inappropriate. J-U-R-Y, right? I'm not they, sure. Some people say jerry-rigged. I think that's German. Oh. I think jury-rigged is the right way to say it. But, but basically, you just you know spit and gum and duct tape and you know whatever you can think of. You add something into this little thing and put a little wooden shim here or, or just file down that piece of metal a little bit or, or do this and do that and do that. And it wasn't anything you could do in a factory. It was he just kept on taking these clocks and finessing them and with all these extra little things until he finally got one that worked well. And then he gave up on that one. And he built another one. And he gave up. And when he finally showed up for this competition, he had a radically different design than he started with. He threw out everything and started from scratch and basically built a pocket watch the size of a dinner plate. Dude. 
Yeah. It was called the chronometer, <laughs> and that changed the world. Because now it didn't matter where you were in the world, you knew what time it was in London. <laughs> and therefore, if you look at sunrise, you know when sunrise is supposed to be in London, and now the sunrise is here, oh, five hours later, now you know your longitude. And now we can map the world. Wow. Now we can accurately know where things are based on the stars and the sun and the time in Greenwich. Greenwich mean time. And so that, that basically took the entire world and put it on a single clock. But he invented things that no one had done before. He made something called the grasshopper escapement. So Rob, I have a random, maybe too clever for its own good kind of question. Yeah. One of the things I've wondered as we were standardizing time telling around the world and we were using time zones and things like that, an approach that I imagined and I wondered to myself, why didn't we go with this approach instead? Maybe there's no answer for it. Maybe it was not even considered was imagine another way to tell the time and keep track of it universally. What if we just had one time and that time was the same, Yep. no matter where you were in the world. Yep, I love this concept. It doesn't work, but I love the concept. Okay, I'm curious what your comments might be, because I was thinking like, what if it was right now 5.11 everywhere yeah. in the world? It doesn't yep. matter if it's night or day, sunrise, sunrise, sunset, and we just all knew that was the time. Yeah. Hypothetically speaking, what, what, what is wrong with that approach or... Uh, why would that not have worked? There is one universal time, and it's Greenwich Mean Time. We don't use it because we like our local time. Yeah. But honestly, getting up at, let's say, 6.30 in the morning, what you could call that alpha time. You could call that, hey, it's Zeta Reticuli. Bing, bing, bing. You know, you could, you could call 6.30 in the morning anything you wanted. It's still 6.30 in the morning. On Greenwich Mean Time, it would be like 11, 11.30. Well, so what? Already, businesses have to post their operating hours and their time zone, right? EST, central time. Uh -huh. We yeah. already have to do that. You wouldn't act all in, in this case, if the world is on universal Zulu time or GMT, you just have to post your opening hours. That's it. Mm -hmm. And everyone in the world knows when you're open. Now, what doesn't work is when you go from one day to the next. Mm. Tuesday doesn't start at Greenwich Mean Time for us. It starts at Greenwich Mean Time plus five or six hours at midnight. So there would still have to be another layer of rules applied for different time zones, so to speak. Yeah, and we call them time zones. That's, that's the layer that's been applied is local jurisdictions within a thousand miles or so. They all say, okay, look, uh, hey, everybody, we're on this time. Everyone agree? Yes. Some right. people say, no, 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 we don't want that. So I was just in Arizona a couple of weeks ago. And they're on California time because they don't do like daylight savings time. <laughs> so yeah. I hate California time because it's not 12 hours away where you can just adjust your time zone in your head and your body. It's different enough that you keep on waking up and you're starving before breakfast. Right. It kills me. <laughs> yeah. So I, I love the idea of universal time. It just doesn't, it, it, just, it just breaks down locally. Okay. And it's sad. Yeah. But we, you can do it. I mean, you can set your clock to UTC. UTC, is that right? Whatever, GMT. There's all sorts of different ways to call it. I might just like to have a clock that would read that time in my house. Just, you know, it, that's the thing about clocks is they don't have to be just for practical purpose. They, and so we have that's right. fancy clocks like cuckoo clocks and the like. But, you know, there's the atomic clock, which is fascinating in its own right. But if you did want just a UTC clock, I don't know, because it's fascinating. I, I really could see the uh, appreciation for that. I, I bet the, um, 
National Bureau of Standards in Colorado has a some sort of an internet feed, you could probably have a display to many decimal points <laughs> exactly what time it is. Nice. <laughs> All right. So going back to um, Harrison. Yes. He invents the grasshopper escapement. It's basically an arm with two hooks at one hook at each end, and it just rocks back and forth. It just rocks, click, 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 click. And it's just a better way to do it. There's less friction involved because friction kills you. It, it just wastes energy and it, it makes things more inaccurate. And it's very light. His grasshopper escapement was light and beautiful and elegant. He also invented bimetallic strips. He, he was building giant clocks with two different woods on purpose because he knew that one wood would expand at a different rate than another wood, depending on temperature and humidity. And he took that idea and applied it to metals. And he invented the idea that if you have two different metals next to each other, that one would expand and they could keep each other straight. You could compensate. You could cancel out the effects of stretching using these two different metals if you knew all the properties of the metal. He also invented using jewels for bearings. If you get into fancy watches, you know, 13 jewel mechanism, they'll say jewel. Well, it could be rubies or sapphires or something like that. But jewels, gems are very slippery. And so because we didn't have things like Teflon, we didn't have WD-40, he used jewels to fit all the mechanical parts on so there was less friction in his design. Wow. This guy's brilliant. We still build things like his design from the late 1700s. Hmm. He's just pushing this idea, pushing, 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 until he finally figures it out, and he changed the world. And yet, it's still a mechanical clock. Right. And it's still subject to all the problems of mechanical clocks. He compensates for as many as he could, but even today, I think we would be hard-pressed to build a clock more accurate than his. I'm sure we have, but you know, you get to the physical limits of, of things, and there's just so much you can do. Plus, why would you want to spend millions and millions of dollars making the world's perfect, accurate mechanical clock when we have electric clocks, digital clocks? We have clocks that depend upon mechanical moving parts, no moving parts. So quartz crystals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, quartz crystals, they, um, they oscillate at a certain frequency. And there's, there's crystal oscillators and radios and stopwatches and, and your old wrist, you know, the quartz wristwatch. I remember when digital watches started coming into four in the, probably the 80s. Everyone wanted the digital watch. And it was really cool just having this little, little display on your wrist. And there was nothing moving. You never had to wind it. You just had to change a battery every once in a while. And it was pretty accurate. Not perfectly accurate because temperature still messed it up. But there was a temperature compensation chip. So something on there was measuring the temperature and adjusting the passage of time based on the temperature. Okay, that, that, that works, I guess, as long as it's calibrated properly. Yeah. But those aren't accurate enough either. The world had to move to atomic clocks. We had no choice. We had to do it. So for clarification, what is an atomic clock? Well, atomic clock, there's, all, there's so many different ones. There's so many different types. But usually what they do is they use r- rubidium or cesium, and they run electricity through it, and it hums. The definition of a second now is 9,192,631,770 cycles of radiation corresponding to the transition between two energy levels of the ground state of the cesium-133 atom. So if you send electricity in, into cesium, it will vibrate. But it's not even, it's not even vibrating. It's the electrons 
around the atoms are absorbing the energy and letting it go, absorbing it, letting it go, absorbing it, letting it go. And they're popping up and down between energy levels in the atom at an extremely precise frequency. And that is now how we tell time. Now, I, I tried to figure this out. I, I don't know how they get the frequency out of the atoms. They, it must be generating electricity or radio wave or something. They got a oscilloscope. I don't know how they actually get the clock. I understand running electricity through it. And the thing is, electrons are jumping up and down in the orbitals and light. Okay, light is coming out. I guess they're measuring the frequency of the light or they're counting up the pulses of light. Something like that. But it's such a precise thing on the, on the atomic level that we're able to use that to measure incredibly accurate amounts of time. If you're talking about 9 billion cycles per second, you can all of a sudden divide a second up into 9 billion little teeny increments. That is incredible. I remember um, wearing a digital watch and you try to start it and stop it again at exactly one second. Yeah. <laughs> Or try to start and stop it as quick as you can to see how many hundredths of a second you could move your finger to get the thing to start and stop again. Yep. Well, you would be literally a couple of billion ticks on an atomic clock. That's how fast you can move your finger at its fastest. Yeah. And yet that's not even fast enough. We need faster clocks and we don't know how to do it. Really? What do you mean by we need? Well, we need more accurate clocks. So right now, the uncertainty of a laser-cooled a cloud of cesium atoms being excited. We're down to 0.01 nanoseconds per day. A nanosecond is a billionth of a second. So one 100 billionth of a second. If you started the clock one day later, you'd expect it to be about 100 billionth of a second off of exactly one day. And that's really cool, but there are things we want to measure that we need more accuracy than that. Things that like the, the Large Hadron Super Collider. How long does it take that atom to decay or that you know, no. subatomic interaction to happen? Well, we can't measure it yet because we don't have clocks that can do it yet. And so we're pushing the limits of physics, which is what this whole thing has been. Keeping time has always been pushing the limits of physics. You want a sundial? Well, you got to build it very accurately with what you got a stick and a, and a, a number on, your, on a dial. You want a mechanical clock? Well, then you got to start compensating with bimetallic strips and escapements and now jewels. You want a quartz clock? Well, you got to compensate for the temperature to keep the thing from running fast when it's warm. You want an atomic clock? Okay, yeah, it's going to work really good, but it's not perfect. And so as clocks have advanced, so has our science, but our science has been slowed down in some cases based on a lack of accurate clocks. All right, we're going to wrap up here with the fastest clock possible. So what do you mean by the fastest? Well, it's the fastest interaction known to man. It's faster than the speed of light by orders of magnitude. Oh, wow. It's quantum entanglement. Quantum entanglement. Einstein called it spooky action at a distance. <laughs> oh, that's impressive. It's the idea that if you tweak a subatomic particle, you can get a twin of that subatomic particle somewhere else. It will instantly respond to being tweaked. So take a subatomic particle and twin it. Bring one of those twins to Tokyo and leave the other in New York City. If anything happens to the one, it will exactly happen to the other. And it happens faster than any clock that we can use to measure it. As far as we know, it's instantaneous. But all we know is that it's faster than the fastest click on the fastest atomic clock that we have. Golly. 
That doesn't even seem real. No, it doesn't seem real. The, the quantum world is bizarre. And how on earth can you take two things and separate them? And the record now is miles. The, the Chinese, uh, many miles. The Chinese took um, entangled photons and they sent one up on a satellite. And they're able to measure quantum entanglement between the satellite and Earth. And that made the United States sit up and notice. And we got scared. Because we don't want the Chinese to have a technological advantage of us, especially in space. And, and I'm trying to figure out how this works. We're going to have to do an episode on quantum entanglement. And it's going to be cool. But the best way I can explain it is if you take a laser. We have to do another episode on lasers too because they are incredibly important for our world. But a laser releases a specific frequency of light within a range. And take that light and you, you shine it through a special crystal. The blue photons of the laser will turn red if they split in half. And now you went from a high-energy photon to two low-energy photons. But the two photons keep the spin and the polarization of the original. You have twinned them. And if you mess one up, you'll mess the other up. And so now you can do not just instantaneous, but incredibly secure financial transactions or secret document transmissions where the, no one can read it except the person at the end. There's no way to hack into that stream. The only vulnerability actually is you got to make sure that someone's not hacking the computer that it's being read on. But the stream from send to receive is absolutely 100% encrypted and cannot be tampered with. This is, I mean, fantastically, amazingly cool. But they're also now, I just, I just read an article, in fact, I'll put it in the show notes, yeah. on an internet based on entanglement. Really? Now, you think about it, these are photons, right? So you can send a photon on a fiber optic cable, and you can send it a long way. Now, our modern internet, we have repeaters, because photons do get lost, and they have collisions, or they, they'll, they'll absorb by something. It's, and, and the uh, glass inside the fiber optic, it's not perfectly reflective. You do get signal loss over great distances. So the cable will go somewhere, there'll be a repeater, it'll be listening to the signal, the weak signal coming in, and it'll send a strong signal out the other side. We do it with radios also. We have repeaters all over the place, repeater stations all over the place. But we would need a repeater that's able to clone the photon and not destroy the other pair. And that's a trick, but they're working on it. But right now, we can do a super fast, super encrypted quantum entangled internet over the span of several miles we could do a city wow we can't we just can't do a continent but they're working on that and it's going to change everything but i don't i don't quite understand it well enough to know what's going to change but everything's going to get faster the inter internet's going to change banking is going to change stock markets are going to change Pew. literally if there was a quantum entangled device at greenwich the entire earth the entire solar system could be ticking at the same exact instant. Wow. With no uncertainty. If it goes that far, and if we can get it to work at that distance. So that's my spiel. I ran out of notes and I ran out of cool things to say, but you asked about time and that's my, my hey, let's do time different ways. I love, I love taking a subject and twisting it around and, and making it weird. We start off with God's hour of time, mm -hmm. and we ended up with instantaneous communications across space. It's faster than the speed of light. What? So you could be on Mars 
watching in real time a news broadcast on Earth. Well, that's the dream. <laughs> yeah, no, it made a delay. That'll be amazing if it happens. If, yes. That was one of the cool parts of the Mars, the Martian film where you're just seeing how there's that dramatic delay almost 20 minutes long. Depending on where Mars is in its orbit, yeah. Don't know the quality of the communication either. Well, and that's true for when we, um, anytime we send and land something on Mars, we lose communication when it's entering the atmosphere and you don't know the thing burned up or smashed for several minutes. <laughs> you just are waiting <laughs> for the signal to go from Mars to Earth and and then you get to sit there and everyone goes, yay, right. we made it, hooray. But we have to have autonomous landers so far because everything we sent to Mars is robotic. <laughs> a human cannot control the landing. That is just so cool. Thanks, everybody, for joining us on this quest. If you found this topic interesting in any way, please consider sharing this episode with your friends and family. This episode's links and show notes are available with this podcast in the players on your phone, and you can also find them on nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 57. If you want to get Equinox Plus, which includes bonus episodes, you can hear more from us. You should look it up in the links in the podcast and the show notes. And you should also check out Biblical Genetics, which is Rob's other project. Biblical Genetics is also available on Facebook and YouTube, where you can watch his videos, and he has some new ones of late, and uh, joining the discussions in the comments. If you want to find me, I'm also available on Twitter or listen to my other podcast, Hi-Fi, which is available at nightowl.fm, the website. And my Twitter handle is at JCS Darnell. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. You've been listening to Equinox. Another comment I'll make about time, uh, if you're thinking about it with clocks and the interfaces we were using that are analog, we're really just telling it by motion, you know, constant movement of parts. And so those parts had to conform to the rate that we wanted to tell time. Does that make sense? You know, I I know this is kind of an odd way to think about it. Yeah, they had to move at the rate of the sun. Mm hmm. We want this thing here to tell us where the sun is, essentially, because that's how we define what one day is. And yeah. based on a day, we have an hour, then we have a second based on that. And then we, we define the, you know, the legal speed of vehicles based on the motion of that vehicle <laughs> over an hour. You know, it, it's funny. Yes, what if we funny. were trying to tell the, the legal speed of our, the motion of our vehicles per the minute? Yeah, sure. There's a guy named Mile a Minute Murphy. He was the first person to crack 60 miles an hour on a bicycle. Wow. Who knew? So yeah, we could, we could do that. In fact, uh, the boss, I was uh, talking about bicycling and I'm telling him my times and I'm doing in kilometers. And even though he's from Australia, he goes, you use kilometers? I'm like, yeah, of course I use kilometers. Don't you? He goes, no, I use miles. I'm in America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I said, why do you use Australia. kilometers? I said, because I run a 5K every once in a while. That's three miles, but it's also five kilometers. And so since I'm running a 5K, when I'm running in the wintertime, I'm measuring kilometers. I want to know how fast I'm running per kilometer, not per mile. And so I just left my, my phone's health app set to that. So I'm now bicycling in, kilo- in kilometers instead of miles.
Does that make you feel like you're going faster when you have more kilometers <laughs> per hour? Well, no, because he gave me a um, a thing attached to the handlebars, which tells you your speed and your distance. And he he had that set to miles. So I'm, I'm looking at miles per hour when I'm riding, even though my phone in the pack in the back is actually recording in kilometers. Ah. So this morning, you know, 15 miles an hour was typical. I got up to 22 at one point. Uh, right at the end, just sprinting to the end at 22 uh, but I tend to cruise about 17 miles an hour, 14 or 13 going up hills just because, you know, I don't have uphill muscles. <laughs> 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 I did when I was younger, but they just seem to have gone away. <laughs> I'm fighting for mine. I'm fighting for with my dear life. Got to hit the gym again. You reminded me of that fact. Be healthy. I'll try. I do want to pick up cycling eventually. I, I, th- I would think it would be a lot more fun if I could take the kids with me and use the trails. If we could all do it together, I'd, I'd be much more serious about it. Yeah. I just don't want to go cycling by myself. But taking four bicycles is really hard. That too. Especially if you're putting people in the car too. You, it, it's almost impossible. The Rex can usually handle, what, two or three at the most? Yeah, usually two adults. Maybe you throw a kid's bike on there. You can get a three-one. Mm. You, you need a trailer hitch is what you need. But then you pull in a trailer. You just Bikes yeah. are awkward. If they folded flat, man, life would be a lot better. We should invent the flat folding bike. Interesting. You know, that it handlebars could be done. fold flat, that pedals flip up and fold flat. That would be cool. Huh. I just invented a flat folding bike. It's not very hard. I, mean, I can imagine that being very doable. Most of it is already very flat. You just need the handle. I'm going to make a million dollars, man. I just invented the flat bike. Good idea. All right. Kickstarter. <laughs>